0: Time to get started tonight, and it's good to see you. We'll be continuing our study of the book of Esther tonight. Chapter 2 is where we'll be. Esther chapter 2. We'll study in just a moment, but let's begin, as we always do, by going together. Holy Father, we're thankful for the blessing that you've given us tonight to assemble once again in the middle of the week and spend some time with our minds focused on your Word. We pray, Father, that as we study tonight that we'll be able to to understand some lessons that that will help us uh, with our faith and that will uh, strengthen us, uh, give us greater appreciation for your providence, your activity in our lives. We pray, Father, for your blessing to be with the other classes that are also meeting and studying at this time. Through Jesus we pray. Amen. We've probably uh, all been in uh, situations where we kind of analyze the uh, circumstances we're in and conclude that perhaps at some point in the past, uh, God may have been working providentially uh, to us for the situation that we found ourselves in. I think it's important when we talk about providence that we, um, we understand that while it's true that God does work providentially, it's difficult for us, I guess really impossible for us, to be able to say with absolute certainty in any given situation, I know that this was God doing this, And I know exactly what God was doing and why God was doing it and this, that, and the other. Uh, Because God doesn't reveal those things to us. Uh, We have confidence that perhaps certain things have happened the way they did because of the providence of God, but uh, we certainly can never pinpoint with absolute certainty God's activity because that's the nature of providence, as we've talked about in previous, previous classes. But perhaps there are situations where we where we believe and perhaps even strongly that God used certain situations in our lives to prepare us for certain other situations and circumstances. I think about Joseph in that respect. Hold your place in Esther chapter 2 just uh, as a quick example uh, and turn back to Genesis chapter 45. Genesis chapter 45 through a lot uh, of a lot of difficulty, dealing with the hatred of his brothers, uh, brothers who wanted to kill him, at least all but one did. Reuben talked the other brothers out of it, and but still they ended up selling him as a common slave. And then he gets falsely accused and ends up in prison for two years. And uh, you know a lot of things happened to Joseph that were. Uh, very negative and unpleasant and tragic and difficult to understate it. But when all was said and done, and Joseph was able to use his position in Egypt to save his family, he looked back on that, and in Genesis 45, 5, he said this to his brothers, And now do not be distressed or angry with your because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. That was Joseph's perspective. As he looked back on all of the difficulties that he had been through because of his brothers, he was able to look back on it being in the position he was in and say, you know what, I think God did this ultimately. God sent me here in order to be able to preserve your lives. He'll say later, Genesis 50 verse 20, Again, to his brothers, as for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as you are this day. So, what they meant for evil, God meant for good. So, when Joseph considered all that he had been through, that was the conclusion that he reached. That all the negative things that had happened were serving a purpose. That ultimately he was able to see. Now, when Joseph was was you know a year into his prison sentence for uh, something that he didn't do that that Potiphar's wife had accused him of doing, I don't know what Joseph was thinking. The Bible doesn't tell us that, but it makes you wonder if he if there were moments in those circumstances or when he was down in the bottom of the pit prior to that that his brothers had put him there and he heard that they were planning on killing him You know, I don't know what was going through his mind but perhaps perhaps he wasn't thinking very positive thoughts maybe he didn't have any concept, any idea that, that, that God was going to use all of that to work out something good, I don't know, maybe he did if he was anything like me he probably didn't uh, but Ultimately, that's what happened. Now, we can probably all think of circumstances like that in our own lives. I think about um, not too long ago, and by that I mean within the last couple of months, um, a preacher called me that I've known for a few years, and he's, he's the most um, uh, positive, upbeat um, you know, always smiling, always laughing, kind of guys, and and uh, he called me on the phone and said, he said I he said I think I've burned out. He said I I don't know that I want to do this anymore. I'm talking about preaching, and it was the biggest shock to my life <laughs> to that point with regard to him because he's just not that kind of a person. But he called he called me because. He knew that I had been through that, and uh, and he, he wanted advice. He wanted help. He wanted some perspective. Uh, and you know, the the time that I went through that difficulty several years ago, when I didn't really think I wanted to preach anymore, and and did quit. Actually, I stood in the pulpit and told everybody I quit. Can't do it anymore. I, I, I just I don't have it. And. Um, you know, when when I was going through that, I wasn't thinking at the time that you know maybe one day I might be able to help somebody else if I can get through this myself. Uh, but uh, you know, if if God worked things out for me to be where I am now, to be able to help somebody else, then then to Him be the glory for that. But it does make you wonder. It does make you think about that possibility. And so, with with that in mind, that kind of introduces us to Esther chapter 2, because in this chapter, we're going to see God takes Esther through a very difficult situation. But it's going to be a situation that was necessary to put her in a position to ultimately save her people. All right? So let's look at that. Esther chapter 2. We'll go through the text as we always do. Just kind of lay it out, uh, and then we'll go back at the end and look at some practical applications. All right. First of all, first four verses uh, tell us about this selection process to replace Queen Vashti. We studied last week from chapter 1. Queen Vashti uh, disobeyed uh, a king's order. And because of that, uh, there was an uproar among the king's uh, associates, and they, they instructed the king, or counseled him, that it would be in the best interest, not just of him, but it would be in the best interest of the kingdom, if Vashti, who defied him, would be removed from the throne, and another queen would be sought. The king agreed with that, and uh, and, and the plan ultimately to do that, was going to be carried out. Chapter 2 tells us how that plan is carried out. But I think it's interesting to notice in the first verse that it says, after these things, how how long after? Nobody knows. But sometime after these things had happened, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Some have said that just based on the wording that it might give a, a, a possible hint that perhaps the king regretted what he had decreed against Bashtai The text certainly doesn't say that and I'm certainly not dogmatically saying that that is what happened. But it does offer that possibility uh, because it, it's, the, the writer specifically says this was after his anger had abated that he remembered and thought about all of that. Perhaps he thought about it with some degree of regret. But nonetheless, his attendance um, verse 2, reminded him that this was the plan. This was the decree. This was the law that was put into place. That beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king. And let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa, the citadel. Under the custody of Hegai, let cosmetics be given to them, and so forth. Whoever pleases the king, verse 4, will be queen instead of Vashti. So the idea is send out um, information through all of the provinces. In chapter 1, wasn't there about 127 of those? 127 provinces? Yes, chapter 1, verse 1. So send word in the provinces and have them gather up beautiful young virgins in the provinces and then... Bring all of them into the harem. I don't know if they selected the most beautiful from each province. I I don't know how many they brought. But bring them to the capital. uh, Allow them to, or put them through a lengthy uh, physical preparation process. And then the king would spend time with each of these young virgins, and whichever one pleased him the most would be crowned the new queen. All right, so there's the plan. Now, we're going to be introduced for the first time to Mordecai and Esther. Verses 5 and 6 tell us that Mordecai was among uh, among the Jewish people whose descendants had been taken captive by the Babylonians a long time before. This would have been over a hundred years before. So Mordecai is a Jew, his family brought to that area during the Babylonian captivity. Esther, verse 7, so known as Hadassah, is identified as the daughter of Mordecai's uncle. That would have made them cousins. Uh, She had neither father nor mother. She was beautiful, uh, had a beautiful figure, was lovely to look at. And Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter when her parents died. All right, now these are going to be, of course, the, the major, you know, the, two of the major players in, uh, in the rest of uh, this narrative. All right, now the preparation, verses 8 through 14. As, as the young ladies were being gathered up for their preparations, Esther was among those that were chosen. Look at verse 8. When the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, when many young women were gathered in Susa the citadel in the custody of Hegai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Hegai who had charge of the women. It gets interesting, the wording there. She was taken and brought there. Um, I suspect that was probably the case with all of these young ladies. There may have been some who might have... uh, you know who might have had the dreamy eyes and 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 just wanted to be queen uh, but uh, there are probably a lot of them that just would just as soon stayed right where they were and and not be put through all of this uh, but esther is among those that are taken but she quickly verse 9 she quickly finds favor with this man he got, who's the one that's in charge of all of this preparatory work uh, and she received special treatment but verse 10 is a good uh, important passage to keep in mind she had not made known her people or kindred for mordecai had commanded her not to make it known so in the process of this mordecai has instructed esther don't you don't tell anybody about your family history don't tell them that that you're Jewish, in other words. The reason for that is not given, uh, but Mordecai thought it wise that she not reveal that. And he kept up with her, verse 11, each day just to see how things were going through this process. Now, the process lasted a whole year. Verse 12 tells us, when the turn came for each young woman to go into the king after being months under the regulations for the women. That was the regular period of their beautifying six months for this, six months for that. And the process is described as when the time would come, verse 13, she could take with her whatever she desired from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening she would go in, verse 14, in the morning she would return, but this time to the second harem in the custody of another person, Shashgaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. So these ladies are brought in, virgins, placed in that harem. They spend the night with the king, and the next day they're placed in a different harem. Uh, The one not of the virgins, but of the concubines. And I think we pointed out that that probably gives us some idea as to what the process was and what it involved uh, with regard to uh, what the king was doing in trying to select a new queen. All right? So that's the process. Now, Esther is chosen, verses 15 through 18. When her turn came, verse 15 says, she had nothing uh, to take in there with her except what uh, Hegai, the king's eunuch, had advised her. All right, so she, you know, she evidently wants to win his favor, so she allows this he guy to give her instruction uh, what to take with her into uh, her time with the king. Verse seventeen says that the king loved Esther more than all the women; she won grace in his sight, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti, and then they all celebrated. Alright? Now, that's the selection. The last part of chapter 2 doesn't have anything to do with the selection, but it's important for events that are going to happen later. So notice verses 19 through 23. On a certain particular day, uh, when, incidentally, notice, when the virgins were gathered together the second time. What that was for, we're not told. But evidently, these virgins were assembled together for another time. Perhaps he was going to choose somebody else to be in his, in his uh, harem, not to be queen, but to be in his harem, perhaps. Oh, verse 20, Esther had still not made known her kindred or her people. And Mordecai, verse 21, sitting at the king's gate, overhears two of the king's eunuchs, Bigthan and Teresh, who had become angry and sought to lay hands on the king. That's the end of verse 21. Mordecai overhears this, a plot to assassinate the king. And uh, and so Mordecai tells Esther, who's now queen, verse 22, Esther then tells the king, in the name of Mordecai. In other words, she she tells the king about this uh, on his behalf because he was the one that that had discovered the plot. Verse twenty three. When that was investigated and found out that it was true, the men were both uh, executed, and then it was recorded. All that was recorded in the chronicles of, uh, of of the king's reign. All right. Now that event again is going to come back and play a major part in how this story unfolds uh, a little bit later. All right. So there you go. There's chapter 2. Now let's go back and pull out some application points. There's not any indication. Here's the first thing to consider. There's not any indication in this section of the book, or anywhere in the book for that matter, that Esther believed in her own heart that she was playing a vital role in God's plan to save His people. There's not any indication that she was aware of that, that she even thought that. Uh, now, Mordecai is going to hint at that a little bit later. chapter 4, when he's encouraging her to, to go into the king and, and plead for uh, her people... Mordecai is going to hint at that, at that idea when he says to her, who knows but that you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. In other words, who knows but that you are in the position that you are in for a particular purpose. He doesn't mention God specifically, but I believe that's the implication that he's getting at. And so Mordecai will suggest the possibility of that. There's no indication aside from that. That that Esther had any concept of being a part of God's plan to uh, to save His people, she was just going through a very difficult time. I'm sure that that the, the difficulty of uh, the preparation process, uh, you know, having you know being taken out of her normal routine, her normal life, being placed in this harem having to spend a year there in preparation and and all of that. And then later, as she's facing the pressures of Alice and all of that, um, she's just going through a difficult time trying to do the best she can, just trying to get through, it seems. But it raises that circumstance with her trying to make it through these difficult times and not contemplating God's activity, raises the question about us. Or at least it does to me about how we should proceed through a difficult time when we just aren't very sure what God's doing. We've probably all been there too, right? Going through some kind of, of, of circumstance that's, that's very hard. And in those times, those are a lot of the times when we begin wondering. What is this for? Is is this for something? What might God be doing? Well, let me offer some some thoughts about that. Maybe they'll be helpful. Somebody had had asked me that one time about you know what it means you know what it means to walk by faith. You know what it means to what does that mean on a practical level? In other words, you know, how do I how do I handle circumstances in a way that, uh, that exhibits faith when I'm not sure what I'm supposed to do, when I'm not sure what, what decision I'm supposed to make, when I'm not sure what direction I'm supposed to go? But how do you do that? Here's what I came up with. In the first place, in a situation like that, I simply must accept a level of ignorance. I, I simply have to admit and accept that I'm going to be operating on some level of ignorance. In other words, God hadn't told me everything about everything. Um, and so there are going to be times when I despair, perhaps, over not knowing the future. How a particular decision is going to turn out. How a circumstance is going to turn out. What's going to happen if I do this? or What's going to happen if I do the other? Uh, those are things we just simply don't know. And there's no way for us to know them. And so, we have to start by taking a deep breath and reminding ourselves that God simply does not reveal the outcome of decisions before I make them. And he's not obligated to do that. Um, And so that leaves me with a choice. When I'm facing a tough situation and I've got to make a decision, and I'm talking about decisions that don't involve right and wrong, okay? These are decisions that are not, you know, things that are sinful versus not sinful. These are life decisions that may be major decisions, But they're not right and wrong decisions. So it leaves me with a choice. I can either, you know, sit back and do nothing because I don't know what the the outcome is going to be, or I can simply accept that and operate within those limitations. So I start there. I must accept a level of ignorance. Number next, I must also remember the limitations of God's promises. I need to remember the limitations of God's promises. and Here's what I mean by that. God hasn't promised me that every request I make of Him will be granted. Only that every request that I make that is consistent with His purposes will be granted. Isn't it possible for me to ask God for something that's not consistent with His purposes and will? Yeah, it is possible to do that. God hasn't promised that my life is going to be free of hardship. God never promised that. He's actually promised me just the opposite. In the world, you will have tribulation, right? John 16, But there are reasons for those hardships. And some of those reasons may not be realized in this life. Some of them can be. The trying of your faith produces patience, right? James 1, verse 2. So that's, a, that's a benefit that can come in this life. Perhaps Satan is at work. You know, sometimes we face difficulties in life not as a direct result of something God has done, but as a direct result of something Satan has done. Remember Job? Perhaps my challenging situation um, is the, the right situation for me to be in because God sees in me something that I don't see in myself. Maybe God sees a need for me to be stronger in faith. Maybe God sees a need for me to, uh, uh, to trust Him more. And this hardship is a way that God is going to utilize for me to develop those character traits. Maybe God sees that in my life and I don't see it in myself. But God sees it and He wants me to face this to help me ultimately possibility so there there are some limitations to god's promises but here's what god has promised talked about some things he hasn't here's what he has. number one he's promised me that my basic physical necessities of life will be supplied if i seek his kingdom first matthew 6 another place he's promised me that he's promised me that he will not leave my side even during the darkest hours and most difficult circumstances in my life Regardless of what those circumstances are, He's promised me, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Hebrews 13, 5. He's promised me, number three, that even when certain hardships are not removed, He will supply the grace and the strength to endure them. Remember Paul's thorn in the flesh? He he, he asked for it to be removed. He asked for it to be fixed. God's answer to Paul each time he asked was, was no. My grace is sufficient for you. Hold on just a second, James. And then God has promised me in the fourth place that we will never face temptations that are too strong for us to deal with. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13. No temptation has taken you but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted above that which you're able to bear, but will with the temptation provide also a way of escape that you may be able to bear. So there are limitations to God's promises. God has not promised me certain things, but God has promised me things that will help me to endure whatever difficulties I may face. Okay, yes, James. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that that can be true. Yeah. Yeah. It will get you through. Absolutely. All right. So when I'm dealing with tough questions and tough issues, I must accept a level of ignorance. I'm not going to know everything about everything. Number two, I have to remember the limitations of God's promises. I have to understand what God has not promised me and what God has promised me. And then in the third place... I must seek wisdom. When facing difficult decisions and circumstances in life, I have to seek wisdom. I can do that a number of ways. One, I can seek it from God through prayer, trusting that He will supply it. James 1 verse 5, If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all men liberally. So I can seek it as I pray to God, but James 1 6 says, but let him pray in faith. So I need to trust that God will supply it. Number two, I can certainly get wisdom from Scripture, from the Word of God. Psalm 119, verses 104 and 105. Uh, I can get wisdom from wise people. In the multitude of counselors there is safety. Proverbs 11, verse 14. So I can go to other people who I trust and seek their advice on this particular decision that perhaps I'm needing to make and, and get get the get their wisdom involved i can ask pertinent questions when i'm facing a difficult decision don't know which way to go don't know what i need to do ask pertinent questions what are the potential spiritual implications of each choice that i have to make family implications material implications you know ask ask the ask those kinds of questions but then what if there's still no clear cut answer What if you go through all of that process, you pray for wisdom, you seek counsel from the Word of God, you seek counsel from others, and still the decision is not clear to you what to do? Then I'd offer this uh, idea. Make the choice that seems the wisest to you based on the information that you have gathered. Even Even if the choice is not clear, perhaps... Perhaps one may seem to be a little bit better than the other. Decide based on that. Place the matter in God's very capable hands and wait for the next choice that you have to make. And that, that's what I believe the Scriptures call committing your choice to God. Psalm 37. Psalm 37. Verses 5 and 6, commit your way to the Lord, trust in Him and He will act. Uh, Verse 23 of the same psalm, the steps are established by the Lord when He delights in His way. Though He fall, He shall not be cast headlong, for the Lord upholds His hand. The psalmist is saying, commit your way to God. Make the decision that you think is best, and put it in God's hands to work it out according to His providence and His will. And notice in that Psalm thirty-seven twenty-three passage, and 24, he said, "...the steps of a man are established, made secure by the Lord, when that person delights in the way of the Lord." If you're seeking God's will, God's going to make sure that you're taken care of. And look at verse 24. "...though he fall." You mean you can commit your way to the Lord and you still may fall? That's possible. But notice he says, though he fall, he'll not fall headlong. Because the Lord upholds his hand. It's it's almost the picture of a parent who's, who's walking with their child and holding the child's hand. And the child's walking along and the child trips. And so the child is falling, but he doesn't fall headlong. Why? The parent's holding his hand. The parent keeps him from falling all the way. And so there may be a stumble, but it's not a complete catastrophe. If we're our ways to the Lord and and trying to make decisions that we believe will best honor and glorify Him, even when we're not sure about what the right choice may be or what the better choice may be. We can commit that choice to God nonetheless and trust that even if we stumble somewhere along the way, we're not going to be completely wiped out because God's going to take care of us, because God's holding our hand in the process. So... I can't allow myself to forget, cannot allow myself to forget that God can use any choice that I make and ultimately bring it about to be something that works to His glory. And if it's to His glory, then it's going to be to my good, ultimately. So, there are situations that we find ourselves in that are hard, that are tough, that we may not know what to do principles, we can work ourselves through those hard times and hopefully be blessed and will be blessed uh, in the end in some capacity, in some way by God. blessing may not even come necessarily in this life. The blessing may be in the next. We just got to trust God until we get there. All right. So Esther's going through this very difficult time perhaps unaware that she's involved in and a major part of God's plan, she's just got to bore through the difficulty to come out on the side. That may be a situation we find ourselves in. We may not understand what God's doing, but we've just got to keep going. Yes? Yeah, it. Well, that that, uh, that certainly could be the case. All right, let me get a couple more, uh, or at least one more application to think about before we run out of time. Mordecai and Esther are living or were living in a Gentile environment. Remember that. They were Jews, but they were living in a, a Gentile area. And uh, I don't know that they always made the best decisions given some of their choices and circumstances, but uh, the fact that they were in that environment gives us reason to consider uh, our own environment because we live in a place that is not ultimately our home. Uh, we are we are in a foreign land, in a sense. Uh, our, our citizenship is in heaven, right? Philippians 3, verse 20. Uh, we are strangers and pilgrims, to use Peter's words from 1 Peter 2, verse 11. And, uh, and so we're kind of in a hostile environment, just in that sense. As we talked about, uh, if you were here Sunday in our class from, from John chapter 15, where Jesus told his disciples about the fact that, uh, you know, that they were in the world, but they were not of the world. And so that was going to bring a certain level of difficulty into their lives. And so in that respect, you know, the Bible gives uh, some instruction in that regard. How do we conduct ourselves living in a hostile environment? Peter addresses that in 1 Peter 1. I wish we had time to go through that, but, uh, you know, he... He encourages things like uh, uh, recognizing the seriousness of life, First 1 Peter 1.13, be holy, First 1 Peter 1.15, live in fear of God, verse 17, and so forth. But one more thing that comes from Esther chapter 2 that's important for us is for us to be good citizens. Mordecai was uh, a good citizen. He discovered, he overhears a plot to assassinate the king. Now, what had the king done to put Mordecai in his debt? Well, not much that I can see. Uh, You know, the king was not the bastion of of civility and spirituality, but he was the king. And Mordecai, when he heard this plot, uh, revealed it, told it to the queen so so that the king's life could be saved. He was being a good citizen. And we ought to be that too. No, no no, citizen should be a better citizen than a Christian. We ought to be the best citizens in the world because of how God's instructed us to live uh, with regard to civil law and civil officials and such. All right, that was both bells, right? Okay, thank you much. Uh, chapter 3 next time. Appreciate it.